Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller, and today I want to talk about happiness. And the reality is, we are terrible predictors of what makes us happy. Terrible. And it is a science, kinda, and it's important, because if we want happy customers and a happy team, we have got to figure this out. JJ and I are going to talk later about this interview, but I don't want to wait anymore. This interview is with Jen Lim, and she wrote a book called Delivering Happiness. And it's a deep, thoughtful interview in which we talk about what really makes us happy, what makes our customers happy, and what makes our staff happy. We'll be back to talk about the interview a little bit later, but here's my interview with Jen Lim. Jen Lim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you and I met six months ago or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Backstage at a, a convention for dentists. Wait, where were we speaking? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I remember you. I don't oh remember. Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is so funny. Yeah, now that you're asking, I'm like, oh no, I don't remember. <laughs> I think they were dentists. I think they were dentists. I've never been so self-conscious about my teeth as in front of that audience. You know, <laughs> okay, did I brush and floss sense. today? Yeah. Anyway, we hit it off right away, but what you do is you help companies create great culture. And I want to know before we even get started and before you tell us, you know, how you got started doing this, why is culture this new not so secret weapon that countries that companies and countries for that matter are trying to figure out? Why does culture give you such a great advantage? I think one of the reasons why culture is so important today is that it's actually nothing new fundamentally as a concept, because if there's been a belief, whether it's within HR or strategy of a CEO, like people are important. And so that's never changed. I think what makes it contextualized different now than before is that culture is sort of the buzzword. And I think two, three years ago, according to Merriam-Webster dictionary, like culture was the number one used word in the world. So- wow. Yeah, which is kind of interesting to asking ourselves, like, why is that the case? And I think that there's a, a broader sort of reason of just the fact that, you know, globalization and how the world's getting smaller. So therefore, what does culture mean? But then specifically, obviously, for what we do is delivering happiness or DH, um, it pertains to company or organizational culture. And I think the reason why it's become especially highlighted in the last, you know, DH has been around for like eight years now. And my work at Zappos was like, you know, 15 years ago. And so just seeing this evolution of what culture really means and how it actually taps back into the central questions of us as individuals and like really the whole existential, like why do we exist or why do I exist? So it really taps back into the why of why do we live our lives and how do we live it more purposefully with meaning every day according to what we believe in, i.e. our values. So I think that's why it's kind of percolating in a different form, but very much the same concepts of, you know, what believing in people are and trying to live a fulfilling, meaningful life. Zappos was really at the forefront of this. I mean, you talk about 15 years ago and, you know, companies would have barbecues and picnics and, you know, those kinds of things. But that was just the beginning of people really talking about culture and caring very much about their company culture and using it to, I don't want to say the motive was to recruit, but it definitely became a recruitment kind of tool. And you were at the beginning of that. And you were even sort of, 
I don't want to say the bullhorn, but in some ways you were the architect of Zappos culture. I want to ask a few questions about that. But first, I want to know, what was it like when you first got there? Was the addressing the cultural issue because of a problem or was it because of a desire or was it because of just the way that you are wired or was it the way the CEO is wired? What was it like when you got there and when did you start realizing we're going to architect a culture here? Just to be very forthright, I would not take all the credit of being the architect of, of course, yeah, yeah. culture just because it was definitely like a team group kind of ideology of what that means. Going back to that time, I think there were a couple things Zappos had just moved their headquarters from San Francisco to Las Vegas. And the reason why was because it was really hard to live on, like, especially if customer service was going to be their priority, then it's hard to live in the Bay Area as a customer service agent, yada, yada, yada. So therefore, let's... Because of the salary and the price of housing and all that? Yeah, exactly. So cost of living and salaries for a customer service revenue just didn't align. But that's a big deal. I mean, to actually say listen, we're going to physically move this big organization to another city, not just because we want to provide better housing, but because we need a lot of customer service people. We can't pay them $250,000 a piece, so we're going to have to change cities. Is that how committed Zappos was from the beginning to customer service? I actually would say that it wasn't that level of commitment from the very beginning. Yeah, I think it had to go through different sort of cycles and evolutions of understanding as a company, like what really are we representing? Because like every dot-com back in the day, when it first started in the late 90s, they just wanted to make a lot of money. Right, so yeah. they wanted to sell a lot of shoes. But then I think part of the evolution and the maturation basically of the company is realizing we just don't want to be shoe sellers and we just don't want to sell the most shoes in the world, so what do we want to be? And so the next step was we want to be the best at customer service. So that's when they essentially double down on, okay, if we want to be the best at that, then we can't stay here in San Francisco. Was that a move for meaning? I mean, a sense of, you know, I can understand if you were just in the business of selling shoes, you would wonder, okay, but how am I changing the world? You know, if we're just selling shoes, was the decision to go into customer service and be the best at customer service, you think that came out of a desire for a greater meaning? That's a great question, actually, because I have never been asked that before. And the reality is the answer is no <laughs> back no. then. It wasn't yet. It wasn't until a bit later when Zappos realized they needed to focus on culture. That's when the meaning came in. So at first, customer service was about growing the company, being good at bringing in more revenue. And customer service was more important for that reason? It was basically because realizing that without focus, then there really can't be sustainable growth. So that's why choosing that one element of customer service was, okay, well, let's focus on this and be the best at that. So therefore, we gotcha. can actually see the path towards sustainable growth. Okay. And walk me through sort of your journey of how you became the person or the leader of the team or certainly an instrumental part of a team that created this culture. You started out in Asian American studies you had no job, you wouldn't climb Kilimanjaro, and then you're at Zappos, and then you're writing the Culture Code book, and then you're, you've started an entire company around duplicating that culture everywhere. I want to know how that happened to you. I'm trying to think of the short story of that, but if I was to try and condense it, it would be basically me realizing, because I was all part of that first dot-com here in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, and 
you know, if you you remember those days, it was just the heyday, you know, like money title status was just flowing and it seemed like life was really, really easy. And then in a matter of a span of a year, the dot-com busted. So I got, you know, laid off and then lost the money title status. In that year, also 9-11 happened. And in that year, we found out that my dad had stage three colon cancer. So it was this like one, two, three punch that really just made my life feel like it just flipped me on my head. I really didn't you know, know what was real anymore. And so that's when I went on my own personal path of saying, you know, what is it that's most important to me? And without knowing it, I was distilling my own like core values, my own sense of purpose. And I realized it was based on the people that I love. And if I made decisions on that, then I would never look back with regret, you know, versus making decisions based on money, title, status kind of thing. So I would imagine your father passed away. Is that right? Yeah, he did. It's been like 15 years now. Yeah. I lost my mom about three years ago, actually, going on four years ago. It's Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. I remember thinking, you know, you think a lot of things. You have a lot of grief during that time. But you also realize, well, I guess the world is ours now. I guess it's ours to lead. I guess it's ours to impact and influence. How much was the passing of your father part of you sort of going inside and figuring out core values for yourself? It was huge. Were you close? Were you guys close? Yeah. I mean, I have two older brothers, so I was like, you know, the youngest daughter, the only daughter. So all <laughs> oh, those gotcha. things of, yeah. <laughs> you know, how Say that no goes. More. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was so much in that, that even today I'm still understanding it. And it's been 15 years. So yeah, yeah. what I realized that, you know, the whole you know, time heals all wounds, it's actually not true for me. It hasn't been true at all. It's just that time keeps on changing the way the whole you life. You process the grief. Yeah, and passing has been. And so what I remember in that, there was a tipping point when the good memories and therefore, you know, smiles and laughters of the history that we had outweighed the sad Hmm. and the tears of loss that's when I knew that you know there was an inflection point of what truly embracing you know losing someone you can't imagine life without can be it's interesting because this is the state you're in when you're going into Zappos and you strike me as somebody even when we met in Atlanta as somebody who you don't do shallow connections I don't think is that something other people say about you yeah, <laughs> for better or for worse, <laughs> because better sometimes worse. I just like to ask you a little deeper questions than the norm. <laughs> well, not just deeper questions, but they're not the surface level questions. You know, they're not the status, title, they're not those kinds of questions. They're more questions that head toward friendship, I think. That may have been who you were before the loss of your father and these kinds of things, but um, I do know that, you know, in my life, you know, lost all my money at one point and you know, several relationships didn't work out. We get tender, and it's amazing how it always starts a values conversation. And you strike me as somebody, I think at a relatively early age, who sort of has a, don't get me wrong here, but a very old person's mindset toward life. By that I mean, you know, when you're in critical care at the end of your life, you tend to see the world differently and understand relationships are most important, understand family connections are most important, and want people to know how much you care about them. There are rare people who can do that at your age, who have that perspective. And you struck me as one of those people. Yeah, well, I really appreciate that. And I think it goes back to, (laughs) in a weird way, that you know, I'm in the happiness space now, but I grew up really cynical and questioning ah. everything. Huh. <laughs> so 
I was a brooder. You know, I was listening to Cure and Depeche Mode back in the day when it was pretty dark. And <laughs> Me too. Yeah. You know what I mean then? <laughs> I do, yeah. Yeah, I do. But there's a sort of sentimental side. I don't even know if sentimental is the right word, but there's a desire to connect. There's a love of people. There's a, an understanding of Viktor Frankl and those kinds of things that it sounds like you're taking into Zappos. How does a personality like that engage with a relatively large startup culture that is trying to make a ton of money. I mean, what did you feel when you walked into that culture? I felt that there was just something different in the sense that they were willing to be their own petri dish of people and willing to take risks, just test things out to see whether or not it works. And then it became more of the greater good of people because at first it was customer service and then it was actually, no, we need to focus on our people. So seeing that sort of evolution and, again, maturation, it kind of felt like I was living a parallel life with a company, if that makes sense. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the company was coming of age and figuring out its values even as you were. Yeah, exactly, without even knowing. I mean, this is not all by design right. <laughs> by any yeah, means. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, hey, this is like actually what I'm exploring within myself and here's a company and here's Tony and that like is willing to explore as well. Just a different platform, different scale, because you know there's a lot more people involved with this. But it all was like truly running in parallel and analogous to the beliefs. Before we started recording, you told me about a company that you work with in Turkey. What was the name of that company in Turkey? Campa, C-A-N-P-A. Campa. And what do they do? In some ways, like the... Airbnb of construction. Um, ah, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And Turkey is a place that is a little volatile right now. Yeah. There are a lot of people who are worried. They've got their fingers in Syria and they've got their fingers in Kurdistan and they've got an authoritarian uh, regime that is trying to plant its roots into the culture. And I would imagine that means people take that kind of frustration and tension into the workplace. So just the country itself would be difficult. What do you do when you first go into a culture like that? One of the most important things that we try to encourage and embrace and therefore kind of laid the foundation of what it means to build a scalable and sustainable culture is the realization that things are always changing. And this is a concept I've been talking about, like in my talks more recently, I call it like the time that we live in right now, I call it the adaptive age. So we're no longer, you know, we're no longer farmers, agrarian age to the industrial age to technology to like, you know, we keep on evolving through the times. And I think this is where we're at now is that we need to be adaptable to the sense that we really want to be able to affect things that we can control, but at the same time embrace and sort of let go of the things we can't control. Right. So kind of setting that as the foundation of, look, this is a journey. Like, there's never going to be a perfect time, and there's never going to be the worst time. Things will always fluctuate. So if we can come into it that sort of mentality that there's always things that we can try and celebrate, and there's always things that we can always work on. Is there part of you that has that conversation because executives, people who tend to be driven and alpha in their personality, they tend to control things. They tend to want to control things. And as organizations get bigger and bigger, it's hard to control things. And it's been actually a paradigm shift in my life to not so much try to control even my own life, although I set goals and I have discipline and those kinds of things. But to some degree, you have to be willing to dance with life. Life is going to push back a little bit. If you try to control it, you're going to be miserable. 
and you sort of dance with it. Is that setting expectations as you go in when somebody brings you in and says, hey, you've got to help us fix our culture? Is that the paradigm shift that you're trying to take them through? Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. This is actually something I learned back in my KPMG days in consulting, like traditional more, like it was internet consulting, but still the organization itself was traditional. But what I learned was this term called expectation management. And it's so important. And this applies not to just companies or cultures. I mean, I think it applies to us as human beings in relationships, whether it's like with a partner or spouse or, you know, whatever meaningful relationship you have. I think it's so important to be able to set those expectations and communicate them so that they're, you know, managed well in the dialogue and the exchange. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Jen Lim in just a moment. This morning, I got an email from a CEO, a guy in Texas, a half a billion dollar company. He just met with his C-suite, some of his marketing people, and said, Don, we got a problem. We are not on the same page. They're not coming with me. People are confused. There's these legacy ideas that they're trying to bring up, words they've always used in their marketing. They want to keep using them. There's other people who want to push different aspects of the company. It can be super confusing. We have created a tool and it's free. It's called the Staff Confusion Fix-It Kit. Three surprisingly easy steps that will get your team aligned and motivated. Aligning a team is, I think, 90% of the battle if you've already got your products and processes and all that stuff in place. You got to get everybody on the same page. And that's what we do here at StoryBrand. We got a free resource. Again, Staff Confusion Fix-It Kit. You want to get this at storybrand.com slash private. We got some great tips in a free PDF on that page. So go to storybrand.com slash private, scroll down and grab the Staff Confusion Fix-It Kit and end those meaningless meetings in which nobody is getting anything done. Go to storybrand.com slash private. Well, part of the goal of what you're doing is you're trying to help people create a happy culture. You define it, you know, you deliver happiness. You know, I know that uh, like Viktor Frankl would say the pillars of meaning, and I'm going to butcher Viktor Frankl's uh, philosophy here, but it's a project to work on, some meaningful work that requires your attention that hopefully it serves the greater good, a redemptive perspective on your suffering, reframing, you even said at the beginning of this interview, framing your life in such a way that it has more meaning, and community. Are there pillars of, I mean, meaning and happiness are not the same thing, but are there pillars of happiness as well? There's a lot of overlap. I think there's a lot of convergence in this topic too, of just like, you know, what is happiness? Because it's so subjective in how we each define it in the end, but what we always go back to as our sort of cornerstone of how we deliver happiness is that we always go back to the science of it and positive psychology. So, you know, all this research that's been done, especially over the last 20 years. So it always, you know, no matter who you talk to in the academic side of this, it comes back to a few basic things of what happiness meaningfully and sustainably can be. So number one is being true to your authentic self. And our internal speak is be true to your weird self. (laughs) So (laughs) that's number one. Number two is being able to live out your senses of flow. Huh. What is that? I mean, I've read the book Flow, but how would you define flow? Yeah. So flow is going back to, I think it's probably the book you read, a gentleman by the name of Mikhai Csikszentmihalyi. 
It's basically a term that describes when you're doing an activity and you're so engrossed in it, in your, you're in your flow, that minutes go by, but it feels like hours have gone by. Yeah. And in some ways, I don't know if you're into basketball, but the Warriors just won a championship. Hopefully you're not any of <laughs> no, no, no. Tied in with LeBron in Ohio, but (laughs) there was this one game that Kevin Durant was just, is just so clear when he's in his flow. Yeah. And if you think about a definition, like one of the ways I really like this definition is when your level of skill matches up to a level of challenge and both of them at a heightened state. Hmm. So when Kevin Durant just took over the game and basically won it for the Warriors, that was just like his extreme state of flow. And so that's an example of how we can sustain our happiness is when we get in those states of flow. And how does a company help their team members find that? We have a model called Me, We Community. And Me, if you can imagine concentric circles, Me's in the middle, then it's the We, and then it's community. It's by focusing on the me. Everyone has their strengths and weaknesses, and essentially everyone has their states of flow. So there's a lot of different tools out there, whether it's Strengths Finder or Strength Scope, and being able to help people identify what those strengths and therefore flow states are, and being able to incorporate what those things are in your role and responsibilities is what we've seen can help not just productivity and engagement, but in the end, happiness of that individual as an employee. I completely believe that. I completely believe that. Okay, so second is flow. What's third? Third, and this is the sort of like the big E um, of them all as a pillar is, and this is already mentioned, there's a lot of overlap of this, is purpose, having that state of higher purpose, meaning, and I hear this being used a lot today, your living legacy, or what I call loving legacy. So all of those terms ladder up to the same thing like what are we doing that's just greater than ourselves and what are we doing as companies that's greater than just making more money maslow talks about self-actualization and the bain and company research they did on consumer buying talks about the elements of value pyramid the top of it is this idea of self-transcendence how do you define that like how do you define being bigger than yourself how do you define that and then how does a company provide access to that I think it comes back down to, and this has already been mentioned, but like basically the first step into understanding that self-actualization, which is essentially like living out your purpose, is to really know yourself. And like the authentic weird self is what we say like cheekily, but it you know, taps back into, you know, what I read in your book with Scary Close. So it's like you have all these, you know, relationship stuff going on, but until you really tap back into the core of who you were, then it kind of opened up all these other things and realizations of like, oh, okay, then this is therefore how I can approach and make decisions differently. So I guess it comes back to that of like, to be able to live that purposeful life is number one, living it authentically and being able to be led by the values that we have, the belief system that we have in order to consistently try to be living towards that higher purpose that we all have. This is all fascinating. I mean, it sounds like, you know, partly you get a job at Zappos and partly you enter into years of therapy at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of like entering into years of therapy, you guys at Zappos, you instituted a five-week training on ramping. Is that right? Yeah, it's five weeks. Five weeks is a, that's an enormous expense. I mean, it's enormous 
amount of overhead to on-ramp people. How much of that was the stuff that you're talking about with me and how much of it was, here's how we do business? I think it was based on the belief of hiring slow and firing quick. Hmm. So there's two sides of that. There's the financial side of it because for every bad or wrong hire, it costs the company 150 to 300% of that person's salary to go through the transition of firing, rehiring, training, et cetera. So there's the financial component of it. And then there's the culture slash brand component of it. So basically front loading the effort towards making sure you get the right person in and making sure these people are a cultural fit. And that means, you know, aligned with the purpose, aligned with their core values, that they actually have personal investment in wanting to live it, not just because they're getting paid for it, but because they actually believe it themselves. So that's like one of the reasons why they spawned this whole thing of paying people to quit. I hadn't even gotten to that. You guys were paying people $4,000 to leave, to walk away. Yeah, I think it's up to five, <laughs> 5000 now, or a percentage of their salary, whatever's higher. Yeah. So, What would they pay me if I just said, I won't even interview? <laughs> I think that doesn't quite reach the threshold. Okay, I'm just trying. I'm just trying. <laughs> yeah, they might give you a handshake. But no, there you uh, go. <laughs> and when does that kick in? Is it like week two or week three or after the five-week training? We'll give you $4,000 to walk away? Actually, it's a standing offer throughout the five weeks. Hmm. So it could be day one. It could be the last day. And what's really interesting is the reason why, because you talked about it being 4000 and now it's 5000 and higher, depending on your salary. The reason why they keep on upping it is because not enough people are taking it. Wow. So they realize we've got to thin out more of the ranks. Yeah, exactly. I love it because it's a Darwinian system without the unkindness of a Darwinian system. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I should make very clear, you have a company, you co-founded a company called Delivering Happiness. You're not with Zappos anymore. But you go around training people on how to create cultures the way they did at Zappos. Is that right? Am I being fair? Everything up to the very end piece of creating cultures like Zappos. Because the thing that I always say is that the worst thing that any company can be is a Zappos. Is that because everybody needs to be unique to themselves? Yeah, exactly. Like It needs to be representative of their own DNA and their own history, their own why, essentially. Yeah. Like, it's nice to learn from others, just like any mentor kind of thing, but unless it's being authentic to their own roots, then it's kind of like a false premise. How many companies have you taken through Delivering Happiness now? Been around for like eight years, and I think over that time we've worked with 300 companies maybe in different capacities. 300 very lucky companies. <laughs> I hope so. Can you tell us as we wind down, give us some before and after stories. You know, this company in Turkey or another company that you really loved working with where before their culture was not so great and after their culture is well. Gosh, there's so many. I mean, one I like to talk about just because it's so fascinating to me is the government of Dubai is one of our clients. You know, we usually work with the corporation level or companies, and, and this one was like, whoa, here's a government and their prime minister saying us as a government body, our responsibility is making sure our citizens are meaningfully happy. So that was kind of a big deal because, as you know, Dubai is such a fascinating place. I like to call it Vegas on steroids. Because <laughs> here you have like a bunch of sand and a lot of money and what happens out of it. I mean, they've got like ATM machines with gold bars coming out of it. So it's just like... It's, it's really crazy. And this is 
clearly an ongoing story because it's still happening, you know, like especially yeah. on the government level or the city level or country level. So what was really interesting to me is like, and what you said is right, like their culture is very unique within themselves. And so they are trying to project themselves to the world. I mean, like tiny country, everyone knows about it. And so Middle East always known for oil, 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 money, money, money. But here's a country saying, no, we want to be known for more than that, that there's meaning behind this. So how do we actually couple this brand that we have of live in the lap of luxury, but at the same time, we want to do it with meaning and purpose and doing things beyond ourselves. Yeah, you can feel that in the air there. Yeah, so so that was like sort of their objective. And for us, with being able to go in there and the kind of the whole rollout strategy was focus on the government body first. So we worked with like the top 200 within the main government and interestingly enough, kind of fun fact is that a majority of those 200 plus people were actually women. Wow. So it kind of goes against, yeah, which is kind of cool. That's a country you want to help in the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. And so after we did that rollout, then they took that foundation of cultural learnings and beliefs and values. And now they're in the process of scaling it to, I think they have like 85 or so government entities. So each of these government entities has their own CHO, which stands for Chief Happiness Officer. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just really interesting. Like, this is just their method and, and, like, approach to saying, okay, now that we have, you know, the core of who we are and why, how do we scale it? And so, like, this is the current phase they're in. And then the next phase is obviously scaling it to their citizens and more of the, not just the public sector, but the private sector as well. You'll have to come back and tell us, all the things that are changing there. The Middle East is changing so fast, especially these, you know, Saudi Arabia and these more wealthy countries. I think there's a lot of hope there. I want to ask one final question. The world that we live in right now, we are led to believe, if you watch the news or read the news feeds on your iPhone, that it's getting more tense, it's getting more divided. And yet I remember about seven years ago, I rode my bicycle across America, and the number one thing that shocked me during that seven weeks, we were riding all those back roads. We didn't ride through a whole lot of major towns. We just rode through small towns all throughout America, was how unbelievably kind and supportive people were. And I came back and turned on the news, and I just thought, they're getting it wrong, that they're not telling the whole story, that people are very supportive. I would imagine in your work and what you're trying to accomplish, there would be times where you feel like because of the cultural narrative that's being told to us, your job is hopeless. Things are devolving into divisiveness and anger and hatred. And yet, in the times I've interacted with you, you've had a calmness and quietness and centeredness about you. Is that just on the outside or is that also happening on the inside? And what is your, I would say you're an instrumental part of trying to help people and approach business as somebody who has a humanitarian bent. How do you not, one, get super frustrated, and two, what's your attitude about the fact that all this might not work and things seem to be devolving sometimes? Well, that's a nice, light question to end with. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I appreciate your observations in the short time we've had with each other. And so I guess a big part of like me being in this role, sometimes it's like, whoa, what happened for me to get here? And... I think it's the realization that I'm going to be constantly evolving and embracing the unknowns and keep on, for that reason, centering on what I do know. And so that belief is really 
seated in everything that we do and knowing that what feels like chaos and even more chaos every day, the reality is that if we look over the span of time in the last few centuries, let's just say, that there's actually a greater sense of overall security. I mean, people believe it or not, but we are actually at a better place we were, let alone 50, 100, 200, thousands of years ago. So I kind of try to keep that perspective all the time and, you know, not to be hokey on the happiness train, but, you know, the things like being grateful and being mindful and being altruistic, you know, these things I believed in before I got on the happiness train. And so it's just like the difference now, I guess, for me is being able to best leverage this platform that I have with Tony and and the rest of the team to be able to say, look, this is what we know and this is what we've learned. And it's not easy because if happiness was easy, everyone would be, we'd have happy cultures all around. And being able to say, look, I'm constantly, my personal self is constantly growing and changing. And even as a leader, like it's funny, like a few years ago, you know, we've had our ups and downs as a company. And then fast forward, like within the last year, instead of calling me Jen Lim, my team now calls me Zen Lim, (laughs) 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 which goes to show that I wasn't Zen before. (laughs) (laughs) There's hope for me is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) If I can get there, anyone can. It's just like, yeah. But yeah, so I guess there's so much to your question. And I hope I can try to answer in a way of like, everyone is also always evolving. And if we can just try to get to that next better step, next better place, then it actually does work out in the end. We had a guest on recently, Lee Norton, who's a psychologist and works with a bunch of different interesting folks. And she said, you know, Don, the answer to every problem is a person. And of course, she meant that tongue in cheek, but, you know, it does speak to a truth. And if I have a problem of feeling the weight of the universe on my shoulders and the fact that I need to lead something that changes the world, you are the person who is helping me solve that problem. Because what I've learned from you is just wake up every day and contribute to the good. You don't have to be the person who fixes it. Just there's a whole movement of people who are moving in this direction and you just want to contribute. And that's what I see you doing. I see somebody who is certainly leading one of the great leaders, if you will, of the movement of creating positive culture. And yet you act as though in a very humble way that you were just a simple contributor with a bunch of other people. And I think it's probably because that's what you actually believe. <laughs> but Jen, this has been a wonderful, <laughs> you, wonderful, Don. yeah, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's valuable. You very few days at home uh, and you are off on a plane in a few days. So I'm grateful that you took time to give a gift to our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, I want to talk about this interview a little bit with my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. Happiness. Yeah. It is fairly elusive. Yeah. I want to know, in the workplace, what makes you happy? Understanding purpose and being part of a team that's getting there together. Like, so basically knowing your role in the story that we I think we're that's living. huge, yeah. And I then do too. The other part is just being a part of a team. I think, you know, we set a lot of goals for our team. You know, they're real specific goals. And we set incentives at the end of some of those goals, and then sometimes we don't. And I think our team has almost as much fun together setting, <laughs> reaching the goals without the incentives because it becomes a game. We're accomplishing something right. together. Well, there's an incentive. There's it's an incentive. That you've that, got, you reached the goal. Yeah, and right? we get yeah. to celebrate get to and good about we yourself. did it as a team. And so those are the kind of the two things, understanding my role in the overall team and then being a part of a group of people that's accomplishing something together. Yeah, and I love what Jen talked about finding that flow, but 
to me, the flow is conditional. I have to be in the flow working on something that makes me useful. Yeah. yeah. And I know that sounds like really utilitarian, but I like being useful. Yeah. And if I'm not useful in a context, I get unhappy really quick. Yeah. I remember we were filming a movie once. We filmed, Steve Taylor came, we wrote Blue Like Jazz. Yeah, yeah. And we'd spent two years doing it, so Steve really wanted me on set. And I kind of half wanted to be on set and half didn't. Maybe that's the reason I didn't have such a great experience. (laughs) But I stood around for 30 days or however long it took and was completely not useful. I didn't have a job. Yeah. Right? The job was like maybe edit some lines or whatever, but... I just remembered thinking, I'll never do this again. Yeah. I don't need to be in charge. Yeah. I need to be useful. Yep. Right? Like, if I'm yeah. going to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the actors, I'm useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's rare we find ourselves in that place. But I think there's some overlap between what she's talking about, what Viktor Frankl talks about in Man's Search for Meaning, that this idea that in order to experience a deep sense of meaning, you need to be working on a project preferably in the flow. Yeah. That needs to be really important. You need to be doing that in community. In other words, do something important and be useful within a community. Yeah. And as leaders, this is our job, right? Yeah. We have to turn around to our staff and say, here's the story. Yeah. Here's why it matters. And here's where you fit. Yep. And that, I think, is part of the complicated quote that leads to yeah. happiness. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Jen did a great job. Next week, Mark Ventresca is the interview. Ali is back. Ali Trowbridge. He's our correspondent in the field. She interviews him about the myths of entrepreneurship. Here's a little teaser from Ali's interview. I'm not sure that entrepreneurship is the solution to unemployment. I think it's great to support and encourage entrepreneurial activity. We know that can help revitalize communities. We know that it gives people respect and things to do. We know that it creates possibilities for people to discover and learn in new ways. So I'm a big fan of supporting entrepreneurial activity. When we hook that too closely to saying, oh, that's the solution for unemployment, Mm. in a sense, and again, this is a controversial position, but I'll say it, I think we're letting off the hook big companies who should be reimagining how they create jobs. We're letting off government officials who should be working hard to understand how do we revitalize and re-energize economies that are in fact changing. So my concern is not with entrepreneurial activity, it's by making that somehow the solution to unemployment, we basically allow a lot of key actors in society who need to be thinking about how do we remake economies and industry in a post-industrial era, in a digital era, in a post-services era, you know, we're letting people off the hook from having to engage, to make new coalitions, to imagine new ways to support industry. Be sure to tune in again next week to hear that entire conversation. JJ, happiness is important. It is. It's underrated. More people should be happy more. (laughs) We got to figure this out. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or on iTunes. Andrew's music makes me happy. There you go. He makes me happy. He does. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to be happy. Happy.